I'm in one of the centers. I'm actually going to college, Swarthmore College, where I went to college, and then there at medical school. And there I went on to uh, get my uh, training in medicine at the University of Chicago. And then that's when I decided that uh, probably I needed some different education. So I made a decision, it was kind of on the box, to go get a PhD in public policy. So in 1987, my beginning of my training, my work that I do now, is trained, I was trained at the RAND Corporation, for those of you who know, RAND in Santa Monica. Some people know the RAND Corporation. So the RAND Corporation is kind of strange to say that's a great corporation. But that's a, now it's a RAND Corporation. If you want the inside story, it stands for Research for Army and Navy Development. So it's kind of funky saying that I got my PhD from a corporation that did research for Army and Navy development. But the primary goal of the Rand Corporation back then was that after World War II, there should be a think tank that would do research, military research, that would not be beholden to the government to do the work. So the plan was to find a place to do research that could be the furthest possible geographic location from Washington, D.C. So they picked Santa Monica, California. So that's where I got my degree, was sitting on the beach there in Santa Monica by the, the only thing next to me is the Ferris wheel, if you ever go out to Santa Monica, that's the next thing in the ocean. And so the only reason why Rand has changed, and this goes back to my work a little bit, is that primary work was military research. The person who was my mentor is named Tony Pascal, and his office mate was Dan, was Dan Ellsberg. And Dan Ellsberg, for those of all about my age and older, would recognize Dan Ellsberg sat in that office and he got the Pentagon Papers in the office. He Xeroxed the Pentagon Papers, sent them to the New York Times. New York Times published those papers, and that became probably the end of the Vietnam War. And that also, at that time, the Rand Corporation was declassified handling military secrets because they didn't do a good job with that military secret. So they developed a health care program and that's how I got into my health care program we, we developed. And my program is again what we do is medication safety and efficacy and I'm going to say about 99.5% on the safety side. So when you think about pharmaceutical safety and drugs and um, the way the pharmaceutical industry works in sense is that when you think about pharmaceutical side effects, side effects might be over a hundred, couple hundred thousand lives a year that are lost to pharmaceutical side effects. One of the most important causes of hospitalizations, causes a lot in terms of healthcare dollars, and causes a lot of it clearly in terms of morbidity and mortality. And so what I thought I would do today was take, take y'all a chance to sort of walk in my shoes with me as I try to develop my case of one of the investigations. So you saw the news clip about uh, Jim Strickland from uh, Atlanta, who Jim Strickland took up from my research the idea that we've looked at ciprofloxacin and Levaquin. So how many in the audience, and you don't have to say, know somebody who took one of those drugs in their lifetime? Okay, so you see a lot of hands there. The drugs themselves are used for urinary tract infection, sinus infection, and for COPD and bronchitis. The drugs themselves have been in the market about 25 or 30 years. They're sold by 19 generic companies now. 
And the original patents were held by Johnson & Johnson and Bayer Pharmaceutical. Those are pretty large companies. The annual sales of those products in general is about $3 billion per year. So when we talk about the collective experience of those drugs, for the amount of years that they've been used, we're talking about $100 billion in sales. It's getting to be numbers. The number of people who've used those drugs might be 10 billion people. It's a lot of folks who use it. Where I come in, where the story starts for me, is at an FDA meeting, which I had done first soon I got to South Carolina from Northwestern, I went to an FDA meeting and it was called uh, Project Safe Use. And the FDA was trying to develop a strategy to make pharmaceutical safety improve. How do we improve adverse event reporting? How do we improve pharmaceutical safety? And we spent a whole day, maybe 30, 40, 50 people there, and it was a, an open, open uh, conference area. And at the end of the meeting, one person stood up on the side, the left side, and he said, I want to talk to you about myself. He says, I've taken ciprofloxacin, and he said, now I used to sell pharmaceuticals. I've taken the drug, Cipro, and he said, I've been unable to work for the last four years. And I feel very strongly that what I have ha had happened to me is because I took the drug. Now, as you can imagine, anybody with an anecdote like that would probably be exactly what that is, an anecdote, a story. Un you know, unlikely or unable at that time to connect that story to anything really related to the drug, just like that case there with the uh, liver failure. I thought at the end, after hearing him discuss his concerns and his safeties, he's an ex-pharmaceutical rep. He was on an FDA committee for pharmaceutical safety for patients. That he, that he had something that seemed interesting. That's the best I could say. He had something that seemed interesting. You could not go any further than that. But I said, you know, his name is John, John Fratty. I said, John, I met over and introduced myself to him. I said, I do pharmaceutical safety. That's what I do for research. And you have an interesting story. And I don't know how much more I can think about, but that story sounds like it has some energy to it and has something that I want to think about more. That's about the best you can get. You know, you can't come in and say, okay, I got that story, now we're going to say that's it. This is a change over here. So after the end of that, I went back and thought about it. And after that, John brought up to me the fact that he had three or four people in his sort of social network. And all three or four of those folks had the same story as John. Two doses of Cipro or Leviquin, and then unable to work for three to four or five years. So the story still doesn't have a lot of, you know, it has a lot of concern, but here you got a billion people taking this drug. Drugs on the market for 30 years, and I'm hearing a story that hasn't been told for 30 years. So I'm thinking, you know, this doesn't have a story. It, it has energy, but how do you know if this story has any reality to it? So I was thinking at that point, maybe the best thing to do, maybe, would be to ask some experts. So I brought in to uh, South Carolina here, Don Madison, who uh, people might or might not know, he was a candidate for the dean of the public health school at the same time that Harris was a dean candidate. And Harris took the job, Don Madison became dean of Pittsburgh. 
very bright guy. His daughter works here in the public health school. And Don Madison, he said to me, he said, look, he's a member of the National Academy of Science. He's a brilliant uh, epidemiologist. He's a trained obsessed with gynecology. And he said to me, this just does not make sense. This is not, this is not a cause and effect here. These people have a story, these people have concern, but this drug did not cause those persons to be sick. And it only four of them. As these four people thought about their lives and tried to get some more resonance in their story, next thing you know, they have a social network. And then four people becomes 40. And then come to 100. And it's become something to make you think, you know, there's more folks. And, People call me every day, one of the hundreds from any part of the country, telling me this is their story. And the story we're always the same. One or two doses of drug. Now, if you think about Cipro for a second, the drug itself, in 2006, Sidney Wolf and Ralph Nader, Sidney Wolf group, was concerned because there were a fair amount of people who took two or three doses of Cipro, Leviquin, ended up with Achilles tendon rupture. So those, most people know now, that if you take Cipro or Leviquin, even a small amount of doses, you can have an Achilles tendon rupture, and it's a big black box warning on the drug. And it says, if you take these drugs, you must be aware that you can rupture your Achilles tendon. And so people have understood that was 2006. And when you think about how did that side effect, and this drug at that point, 25 years, get to be identified and get to be thought about. And back then in 2005, 2006, Sidney Wolf, again, nobody would listen to even Sidney Wolf or Ralph Nader's group. He got the Attorney General of Illinois to partner with him. And the partnership between the physician and the Attorney General ended up in a black box warning of the drug. 25 years after that drug was approved. So you start thinking about these drugs now. We're 25 years into a drug, anthrax, and the, uh, which was, came out in the anthrax scare in the United States would be what, 2001? In 2001? So when the anthrax scare came out, Cipro became the drug of choice for the anthrax scare. And so people had taken a lot of Cipro back then. And people, a lot of people got concerned because there were people getting anthrax, Cipro uh, for anthrax prophylactically. If you think about all that, so here we have all this sort of energy about the drug. At that time, my next strategy, and I'm sort of, I'm sort of fishing. It's not like I have a cookbook, but when I fish, I talk to Raja Fayed. I'll tell you about Raja in a second in the public health school. And Raja said, "Look, if this has a problem, it should have a problem with mice." So Raja generated 60 mice, 60 mice, uh, six groups of 10, and he fed the mice Cipro in increasing dosages. And what he did with these mice is he put them in um, tests for depression, for strength, for uh, motivation, for vision. And the mice, when they went into like a maze, they couldn't get through the maze. When they were asked to, to hand, uh, hang on the handlebars, they would fall down. And it all occurred at increasing dosages. And at the end of that, was six groups of 10, my, uh, Raja was convinced that the mice had experienced ciprofloxacin toxicity. Now you're starting to get a little bit more of a story, right? You got the mice, you got this, the patients, and I'm starting to say this might be 
you know, real issue here. A woman I work with a lot, she's in Phoenix. She has a PhD, she's a healthcare person, and she has been out of work for five years because she says she's been unable to work because of her symptomatology or such that she can't concentrate, she can't really type very long on a computer screen. It's very much of a neuropsychiatric toxicity. And one of the concerns that she has is, she said, look, I wish I'd taken a drug and it could cause me a heart attack so that you could all verify how I feel. Because when she says that she has, you know, a uh, neuropsychiatric uh, changes, unable to concentrate, people say she's probably got, as many doctors she's been to see, they said, look, you and your husband should get along a little better. You should stop drinking. You know, they have all these stories about what it is that she has wrong with her. And it's nothing to do with the fact that she's taken some doses of Cipro and she can't, or Levaquin, and she can't work anymore. And the problem that she has, and many of the people in that group, is that it's a neuropsychiatric toxicity. We don't have a confirmed test to say, look, this is your diagnosis. This is your toxicity. You can check the box and you have it there. But at the end of the day, here we go, we have the mice, we have folks. And I said to her, like this Atlanta story, I said, you know, she, we decided at that point, I decided to write a citizen petition to the FDA. Let me explain what a citizen petition is. It's pretty self-obvious, but I'm going to explain it. Citizen petition. I'm a citizen. I petitioned the FDA to say that this drug has a toxicity that's not completely understood, but that's worrisome and should be considered to be added to the label of, of the drug. I petitioned the FDA to change the package insert, just like they announced in the, uh, in the news clip. Petition the FDA to change the package label. Let me ask you a question. Think about it out loud in a second. Petition the FDA to change the label. We've done some work at uh, USC to figure out how many petitions have been filed with the FDA by citizens in the last 20 years. At the end of the day, what we find is a couple hundred citizen petitions have been filed, and the number of citizen petitions that have been upheld that are filed by citizens is two per year. Two per year. So you look at my thing with my citizen petition, you know, I'm not telling you I got a high odds of getting that petition to be acted upon. I will tell you though, in 2005, when I filed my first citizen petition, when I was in Chicago, I had a partner at that time, Richard Blumenthal, who's the senator from Connecticut, was attorney general of Connecticut, and he supported my petition because he thought I had the right story. We filed that petition on a drug called thalidomide. Most everybody's heard of thalidomide. And my petition was upheld. So all those citizen petitions, which are very rarely upheld, I only filed one before. I got mine. So I got my second one in there. Not only did I have a second one in there to file, I put together NIH grant. In my NIH grant, I asked NIH for $2.5 million to support my work in drug safety. And my hypothesis of my grant was that I would identify through my work a fatal side effect of some drug to be named TBN. That's my hypothesis. My second hypothesis was that once I identified this fatal side effect of some large drug, I would publish it. And my work is accepted for publication. My third hypothesis was 
that once I published it, nobody would believe me. <laughs> and, that, and nobody believed me. My fourth hypothesis in my grant was that I would file a citizen petition, which I did. And I had a lawyer on the, from the uh, public health school, Brian Chen, who's got a JD from Stanford Law School, Harvard undergrad, and a PhD in economics at Berkeley. Tremendously smart chap. And he filed a citizen petition with me asking for the black box label. Uh, if you ever get a package insert in a black box label and you open it up, that the only thing you can see in a product label is that black box. That's all you can see, right? It says, this is the most fatal side effect you might think about. So we filed a petition, I filed a petition for a black box label on the drug. The added drug to say that people can take one or two doses of this drug and might end up with neuropsychiatric toxicity and might not be able to work. We found that. After I found all that, this is walking through the process. Now there is no cookbook here. We're making it up as I go. Uh, again, if you uh, see Concussion, which is one of my favorite movies, anybody seen Concussion, they say at the end of the day, and they talk about that, they say, you gotta fake it till you make it. You gotta keep going with that. So that was our, my goal, to keep going with that. And so at the end of the day, I said, you know what? I'm on my fourth hypothesis here that nobody's gonna believe me. I gotta move on from the next hypothesis. And what we decided to do, the woman in Phoenix with me, is we decided we would tell people about this and see if people would believe us. And we decided to tell the United States Senate about it. So I went down to Washington with um, Linda and Terry, two people who've been sick from the drugs, and we made uh, appointments in 15 senators' offices. And I walked from office to office to office. We met with the legislative assistants on every one of these senators' offices. The first time I'd ever been in the Rayburn building. And then I sort of found my way to figure out how to get through the halls of the Senate. And I realized it's not that hard. People in the offices, the Senate offices like to see you. You meet with the staff. Then they're uh, mostly like if you're from that state. So we had good, uh, Lindsey Graham was good with us. Tim Scott was good with us. We met with uh, John McCain's team, because Linda's from uh, Arizona. We went with Jeff Flake. We had uh, um, Patty Murray out in Washington State. We worked with Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts. And uh, we, we had Linda and Lamar Alexander in Tennessee. We had uh, Diane Feinstein. We had all these offices we walked into. And we go, we say, this is the story. This is what we're concerned about. We would like to see a black box added to that drug. You can imagine as I left, there would probably be five people in very nice suits right behind me from Johnson & Johnson and Bayer. And you can imagine how that sort of works. You know, I'd be looking like a really good story and then there'd be some other folks in there. But we did that. And the kind of story that would help would put it in perspective for me was in California. We went to Los Angeles. And um, they said, uh, Linda said, when you get to Diane Feinstein's office, which is near UCLA, there'll be a patient there who will meet you at the office and talk to the legislative lady. I get there to Diane Feinstein's office, and a young chap who's about 35, his name is Chris, Chris Jones, and you can see him on a lot of these uh, internet uh, stories. Chris says to me, I never met him before, He's with his wife. He said, I'm a firefighter. And he says, not only am I a firefighter in Los Angeles, but my twin brother's a firefighter. 
my father's a firefighter, and my grandfather's a firefighter. And I live every day to fight fires for the public of LA. And he said, six months ago, I'm in a fire, I'm protecting the, the, the people, and a tree falls, hits the ground, bounces up, hits him in the groin. And he said the next day he could not pee. He went to see his internist, and he is a paramedic himself, in the EMT, and the internist says, you might have a bladder infection, take Cipro for, for a month, 21 days, and you'll get better. One day after taking the Cipro, he's driving his car, he tells the story, and I'm just hearing the story for the first time, to the legislative aide, he stops the car, calls his wife, he said, I've never been so depressed in my life, I've never been so upset, my legs are hurting, I'm in a lot of pain, and I don't know what's going on, and I think I want to commit suicide. And that sounds like a pretty, you know, vivid story, you can imagine. He sent her to his wife, and he said to her, about a month before that, he had just had, he has a five-year-old and a three-year-old baby, and his wife's pregnant. And he said to his wife, how is it that we're so lucky to have this perfect life? And then he says, now when we meet with Diane Feinstein, he said, my whole world of being a perfect life has changed. And he said, I'm convinced. And he said, when he told his physician that it was probably concerned about what happened, he said, listen, just bear with this. You get through your 21 days, and you'll be okay. Kept on his medications, like the physician told him. At the end of 21 days, barely could walk. He's on disability. Perfect. A lot of pain. Not able to work. His twin brother goes to work every day without him. You can imagine that story. A story, you know, again, these are stories. Story after story like that. So what we've done besides going to all these senators' offices is decided we would tell the story to the newspaper, like they did in Atlanta. And so Linda uh, Martin was in Phoenix. She would call up and I'd, she'd say, look, Charlie, what are you doing this week? I said, well, I have a lecture to give in Boston. Next thing you know, when I go to Boston, there's the Boston TV crew right there. And we film in Boston. And every time we film like in Boston, she'd find a patient who would tell that story of two or three doses, was sick as a dog, and lived in Boston when we went there. We did 60 cities around the country like that. Imagine that. And not only when we do cities like that, every city, and she did all the work, every city we go to, there would be a person from that city who the TV would interview with that story, with their stories. Can you imagine that? All over the country. It's just to me, you start thinking about this, and you're thinking about the scope. How is it you find so many folks so easily in each city? If it's starting to start getting you know, more and more reality to this. I got a call from a woman at the University of South Carolina whose husband had just come home from the hospital after three doses of quinolones, and he couldn't work. He was out of work. She said she saw my clip, and she said that was our husband. You can imagine that. And she, her office was right next door to my office. So again, we're moving on to hear the story. And my work, the work that I do, my, my research program is called SONAR, Southern Network and Adverse Reactions. But SONAR is meant to be said to be listening to people. Because many people feel that they have no voice, or their voice is a voice in the forest and nobody hears the tree fall. And patients said, you know, like Linda and everybody else, that they've been to see their physician. The physician says, listen, I've looked at this drug. This drug has sold 30 years, $3 billion per year. And there's nothing in the label that says that this drug causes what you're telling me about. 
and they get this, each patient gets this, patient by patient. We continue on the story, continue to try to make this, this sound, this side effect heard. Right, the sentence. We get a commitment at that time, we get a commitment from Patty Murray's office that they will talk to the FDA for us. My citizen petition will be moved up. Next thing you know, FDA calls us up. We would like to have you come to the FDA to talk to us. We understand you have a petition. Does that sound like a good thing? We're moving, moving the needle maybe? We get to the FDA, they have a regulation. This is a good regulation, just in case you ever get there. Regulation says that if you file a citizen petition, which I did, and you come to the FDA, the only thing you're not allowed to talk about with the FDA while you're there is anything in the petition. <laughs> that is regulation. And the regulation is that once that petition is filed, it's called a quiet period. And you're no longer allowed to converse with the FDA about the products, about the, something that's under, the, under review at the FDA. Let me be clear about the citizen petition so you understand the, the regs. Citizen petition is such that the regulation is that within six months, they must respond to you. The FDA must respond to you within six months. At six months, I got my response. It says, Dear Dr. Bennett, we see you've written a very nice citizen petition. Thank you so much. We will be reviewing it heartily. That means that after they say that, they're no longer on the clock. When we reviewed all the petitions, some said petitions go 10 more years on the clock. There's nothing, once they make that six year de deadline, six month deadline, that they respond to the petition, they're off the clock. So when I went to the FDA, okay, we had there, we had a lawyer from the FDA, of course, first person in the room, two doctors. And they said to me, okay, Dr. Bennett, and uh, before you get there, we're glad to hear you. We're glad you're here because you're helping us in the public health. You want to talk about the quinolones. What do you want to talk about that's not in your citizen petition? And please don't talk to us about anything about people who take one or two doses of drugs that can't work. What is it that your concern is now? How's that, right? Well, then I had a, I, we, I had prepped. I mean, I'm not going to come in with an idea. So I thought in my mind this. What about quinolones, Cipro and Levaquin, for pediatric use? Little kids, do little children, to children, I'm not talking about little children, I'm talking about children 18 years of age and less, so it's infants and young adults, do they take quinolones? And we go through the FDA data set, 80,000 kids do take quinolones last year. Do they have any toxicity? Lo and behold, when you look in the FDA database, there are 50 kids in that database who took one or two doses of drugs and can't work, who can't go to school, can't function. So when I asked, when I sat in the meeting with the FDA, I said, you know, I'm not sure, my concern is that the children know. I didn't write that in my petition. I want to know about the children. And my concern is this, very simple. What is Cipro FDA approved for, for children? What is its formal FDA approval for pediatric use. Anybody have any ideas? Which one? None with one, but the first, they do have two uses. One use is anthrax, the second use is plague. 
<laughs> so I'm like saying, how many of those 80,000 kids have anthrax or plague? Now, I, I, I'd hear about it. Wouldn't you hear about it? We wouldn't know about it, right? So my concern with the FDA when I met their citizen petition is that they're selling a drug to children between 0 and 18 years of age, and the doctor has no chance to know about this side effect of potential one or two doses of drug and children not being able to function. So maybe, I asked them, I said, what I'm asking you today is maybe we need a registration program that any pediatrician who wants to use Cipro registers that says, I want to use Cipro in my pediatric population and I want to be well informed about its safety concerns or safety side effects. And if I don't, I want to be signed, pay for the doctor to sign up, sign up for the registration, sign up and say, I understand what the side effects are. I'm going to explain it to those children and to those children's parents. That was my meeting with the petitions when we went there. The other question we had about Cipro, and uh, Scott's here, is we had a concern that Gotham worked on, is that some people with Cipro have an arrhythmia and died within three or four days of taking the drug my heart arrhythmia. And we said, we looked at that, and we understand that, and the FDA, they said, you know, you probably got something here. So I had a nice discussion with the FDA about something not related to my petition, right? So here I'm thinking about how do I move the needle. At this point, and I hate to be telling the story, but I will give you a little bit of background, my mother passed away. My mother died in February in Pittsburgh. We had the funeral, and I called Linda up, who does a lot of work with me. I said, Linda, it's, uh, my mother's died. I'm going to Pittsburgh for the funeral. She said, don't worry. My funeral's on Sunday. On Monday, I was on front of the TV station in Pittsburgh doing my Cipro interview like we were here earlier. Amy's father dies two days later in Milwaukee. This, the camera crew comes out to the funeral home. The funeral home. And, we, and they filmed me out there in Milwaukee. We had to find a place to film Milwaukee that didn't look like a funeral home. You know? I couldn't have the music going and I couldn't have, you know, I mean, so you imagine we've been all over the country with this. We've been to all these senators' offices. We, this is, this is, you know, at the end of the day, patients are saying to me, you know, we, we, we really, you know, this is really a lot. If you hold this for a second, I a little audio visual support, and as you saw, I'm not using slides. So, uh, patients, believe it or not, Every patient who's got the side effect writes their own story up with their picture and where they're from. Story after story after story. Mostly 85% are female. Median age is 46 years. Number of doses of two doses of drug. Every city in the country represented. They have here in their book a rally, a rally in D.C. in 2014. This story, be heard. One volume. Second volume. Story after story. I mean, at some point, there's something that seems to be very real here. I mean, we got this people's stories, and this is not the way we do safety. Safety is usually a large database, a statistician, a p-value, a statistical signal. This is what it is. 
Anybody who's working like this and getting stories from patients like this, it's just not the way safety on a 33 billion, 100 billion dollars worth of drug. I mean, just, it does not, that has not, never happened this way before. November, we get a call, I get a phone call, a note. The FDA is going to have an advisory committee hearing, and they're going to adjudicate whether they believe you or not. Can you imagine that? What is that about, right? Can you imagine that? So, November 5th, the FDA said, we are going to have a uh, debate. We're going to have a we're going to have an advisory committee meeting. You're not invited because we only have invitees from the FDA and from the company. But if you want to come to the cheap seats behind the rope and you get there before eight o'clock in the morning, and there's sixty seats, you get one of those sixty seats. You can be in the audience. Not only that. If you want to say something to the FDA advisors who will be there, you can have three minutes to talk and say what you think you need to say. Now, on the other hand, on those three minutes of talks, they are randomly picked, and, only, and you get three minutes, and you get a random chance of being one of those 23 speakers that they're allowed in the afternoon. So anyhow, with all that, you can see that it's really bending over backward to make it easy for me, right? You know, I gotta get one of those 23 spots, and I gotta get there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I do it. And you get two days in advance, you register, you get the spots. I will tell you this that my guess is, although it's supposed to be random, I got number two, and I was a big pain in the butt, so I imagine I thought that they gave me number two because they knew I was complaining, they wanted to make sure I spoke. And I told them I had to leave by 2 o'clock, because I had to be in New York by 5, and I had to leave the FDA. So they gave me number two. I think they, and it seemed like Number one through five, Sydney Wolf was number four, and from the FDA, from the um, Ralph Nader's group. So it seemed like they probably understood we wanted to have a chance to speak. So we get there at eight o'clock in the morning. I get to the FDA. I'm just trying to think of anybody can imagine what it might be like to go to this advisory committee meeting. I'm really walking you through my footsteps here. What would it be like? I get there at eight o'clock in the morning. Next thing you know. People in the little book are showing up in reality. The people whose pictures and stories are in that book are there at the meeting. And they come up to me at 8 o'clock in the morning before the meeting starts. Say, Dr. Bennett, I was on TV with you in Boston. I was on TV with you in San Francisco. I was in Seattle. I was in Los Angeles. All over the country. Now, how would I know? Because when they film you on TV, they film you, you leave. And then they'll film somebody else, and you won't be there side by side. But when the show's on TV, you'll see that person speak, and it'll be you. So when that person sees the clip, they see me and them, and they say, Dr. Bennett, thank you for being here for me. Because for five years, I've been to my doctor's office, and I've been thrown out for five years, and they think I'm a malingerer. And the only one who believed me, I think they say, is me. And we got our story together, and we've written it up. We're, we're accepted in a journal, which doesn't even publish my paper yet, which I think the drug company probably delayed our publication. But we've been accepted for six months of my article. So they say, at the end of the day, one woman who's there is a 16-year-old girl from Olympia, Washington. I think it's Olympia. 
Gloria will tell me if that's yeah. right. Is that Olympia? Yes. Yeah. So she, she is a band leader, majorette, about to apply to Harvard to go to college. She takes Cipro for a UTI, and she's in a wheelchair now. And she comes to the meeting in the wheelchair. 16-year-old girl. I mean, she's right there with us. And next thing you know, the seats fill up, and there is a bunch of patients in the book. There's a Wall Street Journal guy here. There's a bunch of lawyers. You can imagine all that. There's a police guy with the gun, making sure that these patients don't get across the rope line, because on the other side of the rope line are these 10 people with tremendously nice suits who work for Johnson Johnson and Bayer, right? And they're in the corner over there. <coughs> and the Harvard professor who's with them, right? And the McGill professor who's also got nice suits. Then they have the FDA statisticians. Then they have 21 academics that are on the table who are going to be the jury in a sense. Can you imagine this? <coughs> it's like a road show. I mean, you can't imagine this. I mean, these are people's lives that we're sitting there talking about. And there is the FDA, the company, these lawyers, the police guy, the Wall Street Journal, and then I forgot to tell you, of course, the stock market guys. I mean, I, what I, I couldn't even imagine when you think about what's going on in this space, right? I mean, you think about it. And then starting off with the FDA, the FDA goes through and they say, look, we approved this drug 25, 30 years ago, and this drug is very important in our space for oral treatment of very serious illnesses. And we have reviewed this drug at meetings like this every five years, and every five years we've concluded that this drug has a benefit profile that dominates its risk. And that's where we are here today. Then one lady comes up from the FDA, and she says, I'm an FDA reviewer of adverse event reports. And she goes, I review the reports, and..." I'm just like everybody else at the FDA, except for the last two years, I've got 183 reports that are stories just like in the book here, that have come into the FDA, that are so vivid and so real, that I have cloned or termed a new disease called chloroquinolone associated disability, FQAD. And I, at the FDA, Office of Safety and Epidemiology, have now decided that there will be, at least in my recommendation, a new disease called FQAD, fluoroquinolone associated disability, which will be defined by uh, two organ systems, usually body pain, like a tendon pain, and a neuropsychiatric syndrome, and a disability that lasts for at least 30 days. And she goes, when I looked at that, I have found 178 patients like that, 85% are female, average dose is two, and duration of disability is at least a month. And you could imagine when she said that, the kind of negativeness that happened in that room. This is just not the way it happened. She says this and the FDA has started getting there. After she finishes, the drug companies, Johnson Johnson Bear, get their chance. They said, look, we have reviewed uh, all our databases for the last 25 years and there is no such thing as FQAD in our databases. And they said, of course, and the other thing they said is we have not even received any reports from anybody about such a thing. Meanwhile, she says, on the report, she said, look, I've looked at reports of side effects of drugs for all my life. That's what I do here at the FDA. 
And the average, the most reports I've ever seen from any side effect from a drug is 10% come from patients. 10% in the last 25 years come from patients for any particular side effect. She said, however, in this case, 85% came from patients. 85%. First time she'd ever seen that in her life. So again, I mean, you can imagine, there's a lot of you know, uncertainty. What is the patient, are they having? She said when she looked at the patient reports, they were from all over the country. It wasn't like somebody just stuffed a ballot box. They were all over the country. And the FDA says that if you look at any report of any side effect, only 1% of those reports ever get into the FDA files. So if she says she's on 85 reports, in her own mind she says there are at least 18,500 people who have FQAD. 20,000 people. Now you're starting to get in some numbers. 20,000 people. No longer does it seem like it's only one in a million person. And these people behind me, they're starting to feel some sort of sense of comfort in the sense that they're only they're one of 20,000 people. You can imagine this is all playing out in the course. Not only is this playing out in the course of this, they stream the whole thing internet to the, to, to, to the whole country as we go. And I'm getting texts from my friend in, in Phoenix. She goes, good, good, good meeting, good presentation. And she's giving me uh, things to do. Stand up there and say this, you know. So it's amazing, you know. She's out in Phoenix and she's monitoring every second of the whole presentation for everybody. And as we do all that, we go to lunch. At lunch, next thing you know, every TV station's out there. And every TV station's interviewing every patient in the corner. You know, what do you think? And the patient, John Ferry, the guy that I saw six years ago, big tall chap, he's there giving interviews to the Baltimore people. I mean, this whole thing is going on and on and on like this. At one o'clock, lunch is over. Before lunch gets over, it becomes clear to me, and this is kind of the strange part of it, is there are a group of social network people called, who call themselves flocks. And these folks have a, a website and a social network that up to date, Dr. Bennett will be on TV tomorrow, Dr. Bennett on TV last week, Dr. Bennett's petition was filed, here's a copy of the petition. You can imagine all that is going on all the time, every time. But I don't really know those folks at all. And it's a very political space. So there's people that I sort of know a little bit. And I told a group of people that I know a little bit. I said, look, I don't know the politics that's playing out here, but it's a little frightening to me. I said, if you find folks that are coming in here that are part of the advocacy group that are sort of more, you know, too political for me, because I'm not an advocate, I'm a scientist, can you help me out here? And so what they would do is, well, I'm sitting there, and if somebody was part of the group, which I wouldn't know, but they would know, they said, Dr. Bennett, it's time to get a Coca-Cola. It's time to go to the bathroom. It's time to get a coffee. So they would move me around so we wouldn't be in a political space. You know, it was, to me, I was just, it was just an amazing sort of set of subjects to go into and be into and think about these folks for as many years as they've been out there. And really, you know, the thing was, I'm looking around and I said, where's my team here? You know, Johnson Johnson's got this big team here. I'm looking around for my team, and it's only me and the patients. I mean, that's really, when you think about it, it's, it's like overwhelming. And then when they get up there, the Johnson Johnson vice president, he gets up there, and he's looking straight in the eye of all these patients behind the rope line. And he starts off and he goes, I know that you're all out there, out there and you have a concern. 
And I understand your concern. And at Johnson & Johnson, we take those concerns seriously. So he tries to be very, you know, engaging like that. And then he says, then, on the other hand, we have our people, our, our experts, and we find no evidence to support your concern. Can you imagine that? Not only do we have that, we have on the TV clips a former Johnson & Johnson vice president who took two doses of his own drug and was sick. And he does his TV interview, his own interview. Sick and He couldn't work again. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't keep his thoughts together. He lost his ability to, to maintain his job. Nothing more than that. Not, you know, his tendons weren't ruptured. His cardiac didn't have a cardiac EKG. He had neuropsychiatric toxicity. And he's gone on TV to say he's convinced that his toxicity is from his drug. That's Vice President Johnson Johnson. So you can imagine all of that. Then when I finish with my discussion, each one of these patients tells their own story in three minutes. One lady called me up. She's a lawyer in Indiana. Her 16-year-old took the drug. He became, she said, confused at school, no longer able to keep his head together, not able to concentrate, depressed, out of sorts. She, she worked with him. She said her son was always a difficult chap, but this was much more difficult than usual. And she said she took him to a psychiatrist. She worked with him. She said one day he came home and he got in the car and committed suicide. And this lady got up and she said, you know, I thought for all this time that my son was, you know, having troubles. But she said, I never thought that the drug might be part of my son's issues. And she says, now I feel like I let my son down. You can imagine the emotions in this room with stories like that. And stories like that, but then people get up, and like she got up there, she said, I never thought I would even tell my story out loud. And she said, I came here and it took all my strength to come here to tell my story to the FDA, to the, to the FDA Advisory Committee. The Advisory Committee is 21 academics from every one of the major universities around the country. Some of them I knew, one chap I trained. And this room was like that, and the stories, one by one by one, uh, at 4 o'clock, they have a two-hour question and answer session, company, the FDA advisor, I back and forth. Do you believe, the question was asked, that the risk-benefit profile of this drug, these drugs, chloroquine and Ciprone, has changed since the last time we reviewed it, and there might be a requirement, as per the citizen petition, to put a black box warning on that drug. And we are asking advice of our FDA advisors who've heard our presentations of the patients, the company, and the FDA. Do you think that the risk-benefit profile has changed enough for us to request? And that the advisory committee is exactly what an advisory committee is. They are a non-binding advisory committee. The advisory committee has to vote one by one orally. You have to stop, say, hello, I am so-and-so from whatever university. I've heard today's presentations. I think such and such. By this time, I'm already in the car, going already to New York, and I'm getting texts from my friend in Phoenix, who's listening on the phone. First person comes up, she goes, first person just voted, one to zero, she, that person supports me. One by one. Over a course of an hour, with the votes, they vote again. I have to wait for the vote. Next thing, 
front page, the second section of the Wall Street Journal. The FDA panel seeks tougher antibiotic labels. Wall Street Journal, Tom Burton, who sat next to me as he wrote. And I'll be honest, Tom Burton is from Chicago, where I'm from. His two kids did work for me. He and I are personal friends. But he told me that his Wall Street Journal editor was so tough on him, he couldn't even say hello to me at the meeting. You know, even though we've been friends forever. But he said, he had a right to, and the stuff that we sent around here, at the end, um, Tom gives me a lot of nice quotes at the very bottom. Charles L. Bennett, drug safety specialist at the University of South Carolina, said that putting this range of bad reactions into a black box warning on the drug's labels would have a significant positive impact. If it would, said Dr. Bennett, clearly inform doctor, doctors and patients of serious and sometimes permanent damage to multiple, multiple body systems. So he gave me a nice quote there. And then I got the hard copy after I saw the electronic copy early. And you can imagine me, I'm like, can't wait for the newspaper to come out to buy the paper. I get the hard copy. And I got tossed the hard copy, and they put a quote from the drug company in there. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I still can't understand how my next neighbor, who seems to be friends with me, tossed me for the drug company. So the only way you're going to find me is on the electronic version and not on the hard copy version. So I send everybody the electronic version. At the end of the day, if you go up a little, a little bit higher here on that thing here, here's the vote. Vote for revising labels was 21-0 on sinusitis, 18-2 with one abstention on bronchitis, and 20-1 regarding urinate tract infections. Oh my God. You can imagine whose life is it such that your work gets vetted by 21 strangers you've never met before in front of an audience like that. It just seems to me, doesn't it seem, it seems to me so Kafka-like at the end of the day. So we have this, you know, in terms of my grant, I've got 90% done on my grant now. I got the FDA to believe me, at least by the advisory committee, the last part of my grant is that they're going to change the package label. Now that doesn't happen right away at all. So we get calls from the FDA and from the people in the senator's office that the FDA has taken the advisory committee's advice under advisory thoughts. So I can't tell you at the end of this long story, that at the end of the day, that we've even changed the black box label on there. But I will say this at the end, think about it. It seems almost inconceivable to imagine that after this advisory committee vote of 21-0 and 18-2 and 21, that they will not change that black box label, put that black box label on. What does that mean to these patients here? Every one of those patients has signed up a lawyer. I'm not part of that at all. Every one of those lawyers is trying to say, if there is a black box warning on that drug, then that seems to suggest that the company was well informed about that toxicity for a certain period of time and did not respond to that knowledge. And therefore, I have been harmed because that company did not respond to the safety side effect. So these patients with their lawyers will have a chance of getting, each patient would like to have a $2 million return. There's one glitch in that process. The Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, has ruled that if you are harmed by a pharmaceutical company's drug, and we can show, you can show, or it has been shown in court, that that drug clearly caused that side effect, 
you are eligible to for some money if that drug was not made by a generic manufacturer. Supreme Court ruled that two years ago. You are eligible for punitive damages if you can show that the drug that you took was made by Johnson and Johnson or Bayer in this case within the last two years. Now at the end of the day, to be honest, the way this drug is working out, 95% of all Cipro or Levaquin drugs are generic. So you've got to be one of the 5% of people that can show to your doctor or show to your lawyer or to the judge that you took the drug from the brand name company. How's that going to be? At the end of the day. So you can imagine, it's going to be, I don't know what he would say, a pyrrhic victory at the end of the day for those folks like that. The last thing I want to think about, and this is Linda's idea, it's all, too, is one of the concerns that she's raised is that the commissioner of the FDA, who's known Commissioner Peggy Amber, White, is friends of friends with, her husband is a CEO of a hedge fund which has 30% of its funds in multi-billion dollar stocks of pharmaceuticals. Is there any concern of conflicts of interest when the head of the FDA's husband is making billions of dollars on pharmaceuticals? That's the question that's been raised. Seems to me that's somewhat of a rhetorical question maybe, like that. So at the end of the day, the people will talk about you know the big pharma and the, 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 the reach that it has. And as they think about what's gone through in this whole discussion, in this whole episode, in this whole uh, life experience that I've gone through, it's overwhelming. And to think about the, 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 the breadth and depth of the pharmaceutical industry over here, the FDA over here, and me sitting back here behind the rope line. And so I sort of walked through my story there. I don't know what time is it. What time do you have? Okay, what I wanted to do was give everybody a chance to chat with me and ask me any questions. And there's two ways I'd like to think about it. First of all, some people say to me, Doc, uh, you know, I took this drug and I want to know what you think about this one. So I can always hear those. I'm not sure I can give any answer to those, but I found a lot of side effects in them. That's the first thing. And secondly, anybody who's thought about this story and have any questions about that story? What do y'all think? We got a question here. Um, maybe a two-part question. Um, do we have any suspicions about what differentiates the people with the um, adverse reactions do we suspect is genetic? And the reason I'm asking that is that uh, my brother, for unknown reasons, had both tendons attaching his kneecap to pop. I don't even know if he was taking fluoroquinones before that. Oh, and how long did, between the taking of the drug and a possible tendon weakening it usually occurs? I think it's good when the person asks the question, you can hear the question. Yeah. Most people, you ask the question, only I hear it, right? So to think about on those questions, which I think are very good. Um, one of the things that we've thought about collectively is, in fact, with the billions of people taking this drug and a small number of people have gotten sick, is that, as you mentioned, it tends to be a genetic abnormality that leads these people to get sick. And what that means to me is, we think, the way to identify that and to, to knock it to the, out of the park would be to have plasma from all the people that got sick and gene sequence those folks' plasma find a genetic thing that we think is potential and get a lot of control, like two for one, and find that this is a specific area that these patients have 
that the other people don't have. And we're wondering if two companies have made $100 billion on that drug over time, why is it that we don't get a little support for that little research project to see if next time you take this drug, if we can't do that genetic test before you take the drug? And then if it's your brother who's got a Achilles tendon problem and they don't lose bilateral tendons or, or people who don't lose the ability to work. So our suspicion is that we think that we could find, with a little bit of help, the appropriate gene that we could test, identify, and predict, and prevent. That's what we want to do. In terms of how long for these people on the tendon rupture, too, people take these drugs on average three to four days when the tendon rupture occurs, even on drugs or even off drugs and all that. So we've seen people, and the other thing about this neuropsychiatric syndrome, as low as I said, it's only two days on drugs or two pills on the drug. We have seen in these 150 people or so, we have seen people get sick months after the drug. The drug gets discontinued. And you know, at the end of the day, people are saying that I'm probably wrong here, but my feeling is that if the mice seem to be suggesting I'm not wrong, and the FDA advisors voted 21 out for me. So the bar to put a black box warning on a package insert has been met. That's what my complaint has been with, this, with the FDA is, what is the bar to put a black box warning on a product? And if we, we, have, we have gone over the bar, and to have nothing happen suggests that the FDA has either raised the bar at a level that you can't even imagine, or needs to be responsive to the concerns that we have as patients and as doctors for that. I mean, that's the whole point we have that. So we, we feel, or I feel very strongly, that citizen petition, my citizen petition, will be active on. Now, I've gone with my citizen petition, and I've asked anybody who knows uh, some of the legislators here, like uh, Jim Clyborne, who I met in the plane, and pushed and asked him to help me, or Joe Wilson, who I asked him in the plane, and asked him, if we could get one of the politicians to sign my petition, we think that we could be successful as we were last time when we had Richard Blumenthal sign my petition and to have the world change. Because it might take a signature that's a little bit bigger than mine to get through that process. So anybody who has a good connection with any of those legislators, we'd love to see a legislator sign on to our petition. And this is really grassroots. You know, and what is it? I don't know I have a fund that I'm out here promoting an issue that I have got a, a social action committee behind. I'm only trying to do what I think is the right thing to do. What is, the, is the bar one to one hundred? What is the bar? So the, the FDA in complication and regulation is the question is what do you need to do for FDA regulations to say that you need a black need to get black box one? And so what the FDA has said in their own regs is they have used the Supreme Court definition of pornography. I know it when I see it. And so that's the bar that they have. There is no magic number. There's no small number. And don't forget, my numbers are not statistical. I'm not trying to tell you that 1% of all people who get this. And I don't think it needs to be. I think for these 150 people that can't work, whose lives are traumatized, that's, for those folks, those are reality. This is reality for those folks. And they've gone past that bar. And that's because my difference is that my, my come forward. My mice folks for me. 
And that's more than most people would have there. They might have statistical decisions for statistical databases. I feel that at the end of the day, the 150 stories, as we have here, stories the patients and the lab data, mice data, has made it past the bar. Just repeat the question. Yeah, we can. I don't repeat it. We can say too much. Yeah. Uh, just a corollary to a lot of these things, I think, it takes a lot of the clinical trials are useless. And if you look back at the original clinical trials on the legal process, you can't dig into what the effects really were. You can't get a hold of that data. I know you published on this subject, so I won't go on about that. But what do you think about uh, what they're doing in England now and doing more electronic health tracking, getting a collection on side effects if it's done properly? Do you think that might help in the future with problems like this? That's a good question. What do you think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, English folks, now you go to your doctors, your doctor's office becomes part of the large English National Health Service database. And they do that, and you know what? Uh, I don't know what y'all think. There's a little bit of a big brother concern. But you know, when your database is there, next thing you know, your database is amongst everyone else's database. So it's a lot of uh, give and take in that regard. Me personally, I don't want my data in a database. I just don't want my data in the database. I'm a little, I'm protective of my own personal stuff. I'm not too protective. When I had got sick, I, when I got sick, I did publish my case medical record in the medical literature. If anybody wants to know about me, it's not hard. You just look me up in the medical literature. I have my old case history there. Now, not everybody setting up the medical record, but mine was interesting, and I thought it was interesting. I made it interesting in that regard. But you know, that's where the thing is. Now, um, the other uh, one, I don't know if we can switch to the other one real quick. I only had two, only had two uh, audiovisual supports. Can you blow it out a little bit? This one here is a different one that I published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's our best journal. And uh, I'm excited about having had that. This came out in 2014, not that long ago. And it's called Anaphylaxis and Hypertension After Administration of a Drug. Can you put down the picture? Here we have, this is the way the drug was used after approval. This number of people took the drug. And these are the people who took the drug and had anaphylaxis. And the dark ones are the people at the end who have anaphylaxis and die. And what you see in this one here is people took this drug right after they got FDA approval, and uh, very few people got, uh, some people got anaphylaxis. This is only five people out of 25,000. But for those last five people, and those people are February 11th and 12th, 23rd, 2013, same day. Different hospitals, different dialysis centers, this is dialysis. The people would get the EPO, this drug, to improve their hemoglobin. These people died of anaphylaxis two minutes after taking the drug. Two minutes after taking the drug. Now, I can't give you a statistical database before the drug is approved to tell you that when you give this drug, some people will die within two minutes. But I can tell you, on February 11th and 12th, these five nurses around the country, one in Seattle, one in Tampa, one in Orlando, one in Cincinnati, and fifth, I don't know where, they saw a patient who they gave a drug intravenously to who died two minutes later. And the patient died of anaphylaxis. I mean, as soon as the drug got into the body, the patient started getting short of breath, the lips started swelling, they got red, blood pressure went down, and the patient died. 
Now, if you ask me, I don't need a big statistical database to tell you that those five people died from that drug. And what was the drug being used for? So this drug here is a drug, it's called an EPO-like drug. So EPO was a drug that Lance Armstrong would take to win the Tour de France seven times in a row. Did a pretty good job for Lance. These dialysis patients, every dialysis patient, used to be transfused all the time. Instead, they get EPO-like drug. EPO has been sold since 1989 in the United States and it's sold $110 billion collectively over time. And nobody who's ever received EPO for $110 billion worth of drug has ever died within a minute taking the drug. So these people, this is a new formulation of the drug, only once a month, new and approved. Drug gets FDA approved because it's new and approved. These patients, none of these patients are consented because there's no clinical trial. This is an FDA approved drug that causes a certain number of people to have formaldehyde anaphylaxis until that day. And then on that day, those people died and they took it for so they didn't have to get transfused. Pretty good juice. Now the question is, if you're a patient or a patient's family, since the patient's dead, does the patient have a right to know that your doctor has decided to use the new formulation of EPO versus the old formulation of EPO? Exactly. The question is, why right, if the old one's working, why do the new one? Now, the new one is only once a month. The old one is every three days. The old one has such that it's hard to keep your hemoglobin stable. It goes up and down. This one keeps your hemoglobin stable. And people have a 99% compliance with once a month drug as opposed to every three days. Is so the price difference also? And the price is about 30% less. The price is 30% less than the new drug. So at the end of the day, the dialysis company, they wanted to switch everybody into it because they were paying for that drug out of pocket and they got 30% less on the billion dollars worth of product. On the patient side, the patient said, you know, like you said, if the old drug ain't broke, why am I going to fix it? But the question here is, the old drug was going to, and before this, this looked a lot better than the, the old drug. It got 99% compliance. You only took it once a month. You got 30% less in the cost, but that wasn't the issue. And your hemoglobin, your blood value, stayed up all the time. So prior to this day here, this drug looked like a godsend. This was a bad day, February 11th and 12th. I wrote up in the England Journal. I've got it up maybe three or four months after that. After we published in the England Journal, the drug company went bankrupt. We got the drug company, the drug company out of sale. Now, let me just say one last thing about this. As you can imagine, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm pretty of a, not like a dog, a pit bull. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, I wrote it up. I asked a very simple question. Why did these people die? Would that be a good question, right? A good answer. You know, like, like you're talking about leave of Quinn and Cipro. What about the actual cause of these people? And did these people get sick like this in the FDA approval trial before the drug got approved? Right? And who's going to answer that question for me? The company is bankrupt. The drug's off the market. Who is going to ask that question and answer that question? Nobody, right? So you can imagine, I decided the question needed an answer. And I'm going to get those answers. So I sent this article that I got in the New Journal. My co-author in this article was a dialysis company that was given the drug. Its dialysis company is the largest dialysis company in North America, Fresenius. They cover 60% of all dialysis patients. And I met with the chief medical officer, and he told me he was into this drug, and he was using this drug 
with these numbers that people used like crazy because it was going to be improvement, a, a, a tremendous improvement, a paradigm shift compared to the old drug. And he adopted that. And he was in charge of moving patients from the old drug to the new drug, no consent required. And it's a better drug. I find out that he's written a manuscript about this. I've written my manuscript. Where did I get my story? My story came from the Wall Street Journal, from Tom Burton, same guy. Tom called me up, he said, Charlie, he said, this drug looks crazy. Can you look at it for me? That's where I got to start. The Wall Street Journal called me up and said, nobody's looking into it. Can you look at it for me? I requested all the FDA reports, and I wrote a manuscript to the New England Journal. I sent it to them. I said, this is the paper, it's got to be told. Next thing you know, I get a, 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 from the journal, I get a, re a rejection. They said it's an interesting story. It's not good enough for our journal, but it's an interesting story, a good shot. I find out that the dialysis company's written a paper in the New England Journal, and they got a paper in the review. So then I call up the New England Journal, and I find that their paper in the review, mine's in the review, completely different. And I sign out that this guy, Frank Maddox, the other company, he's got a paper. I call him up. I go, Frank, how's your paper doing? He goes, the New England Journal didn't like it at all. I said, well, they didn't hate mine. They didn't like it a lot, but they didn't hate it. And I said, you know what, if you put your data with my data, we probably can get some sort of positive, you know. So we put his data with my data, and that's where we got our final data. And we got the drug paper approved and into the New England Journal. And when I called Frank up to say we got the paper in, you know, good story. I asked Frank, he told me he had a paper. I said, Frank, I'm going to ask you a question. Could I see what you wrote? And you can see what I wrote. And together we've written something together. I got his manuscript. His manuscript said, before these patients, he wrote it, this is the most important new drug and everybody should be switched to this drug. That's what his paper showed. And my paper said, this drug is causing people to die and needs to come off market. Then we decided to write a paper together. I said to my Frank, I said, you know, one of the problems you're going to have when you write a paper with me is we're only allowed one conclusion here. <laughs> and you're either going to be on my side, because we're going my way, or you're not on the paper. And so at this point, he realized that, you know, this thing had happened. He has to go, and he came in as my fifth, as my co author on the paper. But we did not know why the drug got this side effect, like we, like we asked about. In the pre approval trials, nobody died. Some people had mild anaphylaxis. But this is the big but. But I went down to the FDA, and I went down there, and I sent my manuscript ahead of time, and I asked to meet with the FDA scientist who looked at this drug when the drug got removed, and said, can you talk with me? I have this paper already published that opened the doors. Can you imagine that? Just me coming out of the blue, but I got my manuscript. Next thing you know, I'm in the FDA scientist's office. I'm sitting there with the scientist. And I said, what do you think happened here? He said, well, let me tell you, first of all, I cannot tell you for a fact what happened here, and we cannot at the FDA ever tell you anything that happened here for the record because there's too many lawsuits involved. So I can tell you what I think happened here, but I'm going to have to shoot you after I tell you. And he goes, but he says, on the other hand, if you decide to write about what you heard from me and don't tell anybody in the article that you're writing that you got from me, I'm good with that. So I said, well, what happened? Let me say what happened. The drug that FDA approved as a single unit of file, where you turn it in a glass vial, you put your needle in, you take the liquid out, and you put it into the patient. 
That is like the most inefficient way to market a drug. Because if you don't have the right amount of drug in that vial, you gotta throw it away. So the drug company has worked with the FDA to say, once we get our drug approved, can we change the formulation very slightly to make it a multi-dose vial? So that once you put your drug into the patient, if you have leftover, you put the leftover into the refrigerator, next patient walks in, take the rest of the drug out, and you put that into the patient, and a little more of the next vial. There's no wastage and spillage. And to make that drug a multi-dose vial, you just have to add a preservative, just like a meat. When you put meat in the, you put salt on top of meat when you transfer it across the ocean. Those preservatives are called acetic acid, phenol, sialic acid. These are very common preservatives they use like in food, like in food colors and foodstuffs. And they're very inert. On the other hand, the scientist at the FDA said, when he put that preservative on top of that drug, gave it to mice, he caused the mice anaphylaxis die. And he said there were four preservatives added to it. Only one, the phenol, caused that side effect. So he said, as far as I'm concerned, the reason why we never saw the side effect before the drug got approved is because it, it never happened. And the reason why we saw the side effect after the drug got approved is because they made that slight change in the, in the, in the production of the drug and moved to the multi-dose vial with preservative. And that multi-dose vial with that preservative, phenol in particular, caused this drug to have a conformational change. Now, the second thing he said to me is, you have to administer that drug at very high doses to get this anaphylaxis. And he said, what happened is only five people died here, these five. And they gave him 25,000. Why didn't everybody anaphylaxis? His feeling is, and this is all from the FDA guy, is there's a line inside of patients when you go to dialysis, there's an arterial line and a venous line. And the arterial line is directly into the artery, and the venous line is where you put your medications. Now, if the nurse or the technician is busy, in, in a hurry, they might make a mistake and put the product in the wrong line. And if you put the product in the arterial line, you'll get a huge bolus of the drug and get a high dose of that drug. And anything that can happen wrong at a human factor level will happen wrong at a human factor level. That's why we're all humans. And so his feeling is that these five people had the misfortune of the technician or nurse putting the drug in the wrong line and causing that high dose and that short effect. And that's why it's only five people that died. And the second person at the FDA told me that they had looked at uh, multiple other methods of anaphylaxis, like immunologic and contact activation system, and things that they had seen in other drugs. None of those were applicable here. So I put this all together into a follow-up manuscript at Lancet, which is our second best journal. And we got to revise and resubmit. And uh, Sam's here, my team's here. We're putting our final version in tonight, and I think we're going to get that version into that last paper. Question: How are you able to factor out? How are you able to factor out either uh, bad batches or criminal activity where you know knockoffs might be introduced into our system? And you can imagine the question was about the bad batches, knockoffs. Oh my gosh! I mean, I can tell you because I've written about counterfeit product before. The level of detail that I went to, and I don't understand why anybody in the world would do it except for I'm just compulsive. First thing I did is I got a copy of the lot numbers of every one of these patients. And my first question was, were they all bad lots? It was hard for me to show, but the lot numbers were such that the company only had four lot numbers, and they made a lot of product per lot number. But the FDA and the company went down to the manufacturing facility 
and went through the manufacturing facility to see if there was any evidence of contamination on the product down there, and they couldn't find any evidence, any evidence of contamination that product here, because the product had to be refrigerated. The other thing the FDA did was they looked uh, for the supply chain management. So the supply chain management is from the actual dock all the way to the patient to make sure it's refrigerated, not sitting on the dock on Friday and getting picked up on Monday. They went through a whole bunch of that. So they went through supply chain, they went through the quality defect, they went through contamination, they went through um, a bad batch, a counterfeiter. All that got ruled out. That's why at the end of the day, I'm very much, again, to me, my rats are helping me here, like the, my, the simple story about my students. These rats here, the anaphylaxis, they gave them high doses, seemed like the real deal to me. <coughs> so basically, the bottom line I'm getting out of this is if I get a drug and I open up, it's got some black box warning, that's a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, black box warning. The black box warning. So my mom, uh, my mother's died well at 92, as I mentioned. My mom would open up all these pharmaceutical inserts. You ever see that? And when I went to Consumers Union in uh, Yonkers, New York, where Consumers Union is, uh, they're all about black box warnings. And I, they gave me part of their first 10 years of pharmaceutical watchdogs. I'm one of the first 10 year old people. So they gave, we were up there and we had like a celebration of our first decade. They took out Consumers Union, funny, they, they took the package inserts and they had it printed into a continuous stream of paper. And they showed that when you took the continuous stream of paper and you started from here, it would roll to the front door. <laughs> you know, when you unroll that packet label, it can roll that far. And in that product label is so much small print, it's worse than a contract to buy a house. But the only thing in that contract you could see is that one big black box. So my mother got a drug, only thing she could ever see the drug was the black box. And the doctor, the only thing, and then of course the other thing is, <coughs> when you see it on TV, you ever see it on TV? Everybody ever seen a commercial for a drug on TV? <laughs> of course. You see it. But at the end of the TV, they go through all those side effects. The ones they pick up at the end of the side effects, by law, are the black boxes. And so the black boxes are the ones they have to chat with you about. So at the end of the Viagra one, they talk about the eye or the heart pain, that's a black box. And so I've written my drugs, many of my drugs, I've gotten black boxes on my drugs. So every night on TV, I'm like excited when I see TV and they go with the side effects at the end. That's my stuff, you know, I hope I get a royalty on that. And my TV one is on Plavix. Anybody ever heard of Plavix? Second biggest drug in the world, it's liberatory. It has a very small side effect called TTP. Never, nobody would know about it, but it is in the black box. And so every night on TV, when they do a Plavix one, they say, you could get this very rare side effect called TTP. I'm like saying, whoa, I got the TV for that one. So that's the black box. Question here. Last question. Okay, I want to, I want to take a step back. Okay, Sephro, I've taken Sephro many times, and I don't dispute anything you're saying. And I don't dispute that these people have had issues. But in 2005, I was treated at Mayo Clinic at Rochester, Minnesota. And one of the tests that they did on me was the CYP450. And this is to show how drugs metabolize through your system and whether they metabolize slowly or fast. And drugs metabolize through my system slowly. 
So I know, therefore, there are limits to a dosage and what I take. Cipro is a very strong drug. So I'm wondering if, you know, the medical community should really, um, the FDA waits until people die, okay? That's what they wait for. And, which is sad. But the medical community, the doctors should say, well, let's see how this particular drug metabolizes through your system, and you have to take into consideration the person's weight, their health, and the dosage. All of these things are very important when you take medications, especially if it is a strong medication. So my question to you is, uh, as far as genotyping, um, what is your take on that and drugs? Okay, so she hit on your, your question right there. It is, the question is, if we could genotype these patients and find that they were slow metabolizers, and these drugs ended up in their brain at huge levels, we would not give the drug to those patients. And that's exactly what we're saying. And we feel at the end of the day that this type of this genetic issue is not that common. But it is, it is real for these people. The last thing I will say is, any of you take Ambien to sleep? Ambien is an awful drug. Exactly, it's a terrible drug. You can't buy it. So the Ambien is a very difficult drug. And I'm going to tell you why. I took it for a month, and the doctor did not tell me that it will wipe your short-term memory clean, absolutely clean. And I went back to him, and I said, why didn't you tell me that this would happen? I said, I think I'm losing my mind. I can't even remember what I wore yesterday. And he says, Joy, he says, all of these sleep medicines will wipe your short-term memory clean. I said, well, I took this for a month, and I want all of you to know how long it took me to recover from Ambien. Three years. Three years I could not even read a book, and I'm a reader. And you want to know why? Because every time, every night, I would pick up my book, and for every page that I read, I would have to read it. And finally, I gave up. I didn't read a book for two years. Well, you can my see. memory didn't recover for three. So you can see that's exactly the story that Quinlan patients tell you. Exactly that. And the thing at the end of the day is, it's a metabolic issue like you and the Ambien, for instance, is clearly identified that the female dose is twice as strong as it can be tolerated by women. And so the dose on the package insert for the women is toxic. And it was only two months, three months ago that they recognized after 25 years that the women were being overdosed. And there's so many women reporting that they have had episodes where all those kind of things happen. And they, every one of the patients, women, is getting twice as much dose and twice as much. And the dose is at least 80% too much to be safe. Okay, thank you all. Yes. I'll take the second one. Yeah. Okay. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you have any last questions, I'll just stick around for a little bit. But have a great night. Thank you. Wow, you're getting like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Hey, um, for the media, it sounds like the, uh, they don't know the difference between black and and proof that, yeah, that, that it is. But my part so, is we don't... Does, does the CDC and the uh, FDA understand the difference between lack of proof is not the same thing as lack of proof that there is? They don't really want proof. They don't care for it. They don't care. Yeah, I, I'm a parent of a child lot of I'm also an engineer. You got a lot we're, of we're, 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 you know, we're exposed to you know, tens of thousands of chemicals on a daily basis. We get more injections you know, from early on. But a lot of us see, like right after that MMR and barrages of um, injections and, and stuff, I mean, they just like, they, they're, they're developing on and boom, they go down. Now, because it hasn't been proven as a problem, they come out and they say, we prove that they listen to them. And I think they're doing a huge disservice. Exactly. That's my point. The bar is yeah. not that high. The bar is high enough because your child is your child. At least we have, we're, we're at the bar. Well, and we're not saying not to that. There were you know, like a lot of things. But a lot of, like, uh, uh, Vinny, um, whatever his name is, um, you know, uh, there's a, a whole program called Green Vaccine. It's kind of slow down, separate. Exactly. Uh, but then they discredit these people and say that they're anti-vaccine or not. You can imagine. Imagine how many people have been after me. They think I'm like a heretic. You know? Oh my God, I can tell you, I was scared when I was there at the FDA. I was scared, I didn't have a team. Where are you from? Where are you from? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's you. Yeah. My stuff is scary. Where are you from? I'm not a But you can see my stuff gets a little frightening. I can have it. I mean, when those guys, Johnson and Johnson, they're big guys. They're big guys. I can tell you. I think I've spent before how many losses I have against me. Yeah. Oh, my God. scary thing. Well, my wife's looking at her review, you know, because they're probably not getting made. I'm actually actually happy to be in the closet. I remember you do. The private group had the drug here. Exactly. I talked to the one chap who was trained in Israel in your group. Oh, no, no, I just came here. Oh, you just came to New York. I joined over at the Oh, you did? Just regard, you look familiar. I feel like I'm... Fifth floor on college. Do you go on the... I'm being Thursday. Yeah, remember. Yeah, that's what I thought I was recognizing. The only thing that I would worry about with the, the theory about the, the loading dose is next to impossible, even if you inject into the arterial line, to make that systemic. That's what I mean. I don't think. Yeah. What happens if you just get? What happens if you just get a local? Even if you didn't. So the only way. So you're, you're, what they're postulating is that you basically inject into the arterial right. system. Right. The only way to do that, even if you try to do that, you can't get it because it's going the other way. The flow goes the other way. So the only way to do it is you actually have to physically improve the doing flow. Even in what you do with Andrew right now, you have to physically take like the flow, kill. and then it will go back into the arterial circuit. How do they do it, man? So, I don't, so even in, and on top of it, most of the time, you know, on our line, we don't even have injection points. So, you know, the, 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 um, the preservative part is probably the biggest That's what I think. That's what I think. And also if they contaminate the other right people. The lot of less the same is they can't do it that clean. They can't do it that clean. Yeah. Yeah. Human factors. And that's why like, they actually, for the VA, they've eliminated yeah. most of that part. Everything yeah. single. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Nice talk, yeah. Nice talk to you. Okay, good. Oh, thanks. Enjoy it.